All right. Very good. Very good. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 13 of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jimmy Hackett. With me, as always, my charming co-host. Joseph Stanford. So we're here for another strong episode, episode number 13. We appreciate you guys sticking with us uh, through last week. Holiday travel is making things a little bit more difficult. So we had kind of an interesting uh, format last week. We kind of did things solo on our end, but we are back together. Love between the two hosts for episode number 13. And uh, Joe, it looks like you're still in Tucson. How much longer are you going to be uh, in that neck of the woods? That's right. I got to flight out tomorrow. So less than 24 hours here. And then it's uh, back to the cold and the rain and the, the clouds and the Antifa and all the good stuff. Goodness. What more do you want? Well, so how, how are things in the old Pueblo? How are things been uh, going on with the, the visit? And then uh, how is the town in general? Oh, they're great here. Things are actually open, such as gyms and restaurants and bars. So it's been able to go out a little bit, but it's always, uh, you're always pressed for time during the holidays with family and friends and everything. And then you always have the friends you never know. There's, there's two different types, people that are all about going out and, you know, disregard the whole COVID thing. And then there's other people that take it real serious. <laughs> and, uh, you don't get to see some friends because of it, but all in all, it's been a, it's been a good trip. How about Houston? How's Houston? This is pretty good too. Wait, before we move on to me, I want to ask you, what was your big gift this year? Uh, big gift this year. Besides Ooh. the highly successful Rose and Rhetoric podcast, but that's, you know, besides that one, besides. Um, I think the big gift this year was just being able to escape Antifa land to come down here for a week and a half. That's well, all I, <laughs> I uh so this year my my big gift my my sister who lives in california sent me a sweater but i had no idea that i was getting it and so i got a sweater in the mail with no return address no name no nothing but i knew it was from her because she always sent random gifts like that so that was the gift that i got and then the second big gift was one of those um like from jc pennies or from macy's so it was like perfume all in one case where it's like perfume shampoo body wash aftershave all of like the same scent it's like, God forbid, you know, one scent is a little bit different than, you know, something else. It better just be like one monoculture of scent coming off your body. So it was funny because I, so I got that this year. It's a, it's a good gift. I mean, but I got one last year and I never used it either. So like this year I have to actually use this scent. So hopefully, you know, it's like, I, I can't imagine a time in my life where I need to cologne less than right now, but hopefully, you know, if things are going according to plan, maybe in a, in a few months or so, we'll be able to have a, reason to wear cologne again that's what i'm hoping for at least and what what scent did she get you so uh it was it's called man style it's not right something like that man something um was what man. You? yeah it's like baby blue so perfect um yeah well, i it's like man man style man something you know what we'll put it in the we'll put it in the link you know we'll consider that this episode's unofficial sponsor you'll see it in the link after this when we post it uh, this episode brought to you by some perfume I have yet to wear, uh, and I haven't even really smelled it yet, actually. So hopefully it smells good. That'll be part of the mystery of this, uh, this Christmas present. So those were, those are the big gifts. And then I got myself a couple of books on Amazon. That was a gift to myself, the gift that keeps on giving. And, uh, so the, they should be here on Monday. So then we'll, you know, maybe we'll, uh, talk about those books at some point in the future. I, I won't mention what they are. I don't want to spoil it for our guests, but, uh, Pretty, pretty quiet Christmas for, for, for me and my wife over here in Houston. Not too much to report. Anything else wanted to talk about in the week before we uh, head into this episode? Anything, uh, anything fun or exciting or anything else of interest in, uh, in Tucson? 
Uh, I'm sure more will come up throughout the pod. So. Very good. Very good. Well, well, so in this episode, and before we get started, I do want to mention something for our episode next week. So next week, we actually have a guest uh, joining us, an author, a, a, a Tucson author that we are very excited for, named Phil Lacovara. Phil Lacovara has written two books. The book that we'll be talking about next weekend is called False Flags. You can find this book on Amazon. Uh, for sure, you can find it in paperback. That's the version that I have. And it might also be on a Kindle version as well. Uh, Phil Lacovara, uh, besides being an author, is also a well-known name in the Tucson area involved with uh, startup companies and uh, very much an entrepreneurial spirit. But we're going to get him on the episode next weekend to talk about um, managing the life of or maybe even just the task of writing a book while obviously having a full-time job uh, and just the writing process in general you know what it what is that process like when you're when you're putting a book out into the market working with a publisher you know this book was published by Catalina Press so we'll be sure to mention uh, that process as well but we're really looking forward to that interview I have begun reading the book about halfway down right now really enjoy it definitely a, a page turner it's a kind of a spy thriller crime thriller type book you know FBI CIA that kind of thing so highly highly enjoyable and uh, we'll be doing the episode next weekend we'll be talking about uh, quite a bit of stuff so if you um, like that genre of book or, or just want to know more about the publishing process uh, as it applies to someone you know in this day and age in, in 2020 2021 be sure to check out that episode it should be a lot of fun um so on that note joe i will say that i have a story that i wrote for this week as well a little a little piece uh we can get to that in a, in a moment what i did want to focus on though is that since we didn't have a chance to talk to each other last weekend um I wanted to cover a couple of things here with you that I wanted to get your take on. And just for the record, I did, you know, last episode, I went ahead and just assumed that everything I said you agreed with. And so that's where the record is right now. I thought like that's probably a safe assumption. And so I wanted to mention a couple of things to you and, and to get your take on it, just kind of get your reaction um, to these, to these things. So okay. here is a, uh, here's the first one that I was thinking about. And uh, let me let me lay it out, kind of this idea that I was thinking about. This idea came from uh, from anti-fragile, of course. And so it was this idea that I was toying around with last week. And uh, basically, Nassim lays out this kind of thought experiment or kind of the, the, this uh, result where imagine you have 100 random numbers that are all numbered 1 through 10. So you have, you know, 100 numbers in, in this collection of numbers, and they're all numbered 1 through 10. So the average of that group is going to be around five, right? Just average of, you know, one between 10 would be five. So imagine that those numbers all represent an animal and that number represents some kind of physical characteristic of that animal. Okay. And then imagine just one more thing. Imagine that a meteor strike happens and it kills every number that is lower than six. So you, you have this population, you wiped out, every number that was lower than six, now you have this surviving population. The average of those numbers will of course be higher than five because all those numbers were wiped out, but it also will be higher than six. It'll be, it'll be higher than the barrier that the numbers had to overcome purely by virtue of the fact that there was a distribution of numbers to begin with. And so there's, there's, there's this interesting idea in evolution that nature tends to, you know, kind of in, in hindsight, if you're looking at this, it would be like an overreaction to that extinction event because they didn't just survive. The, the population wasn't just able to survive the level six extinction event. 
but they were actually able they would they would actually be able to survive an extinction event even higher just by virtue of the fact that the population average is higher than that bear that they had to overcome. So I thought that was an interesting idea. And I kind of just wanted to get, you know, as you hear that idea, you know, kind of what's your response to what's your reaction to it? And, uh, you know, kind of if you think it's, if you think it's as cool as I thought when I read that part in the book again. Okay. So I'm, so I'm picturing that if you did a distribution of the numbers between one to 10, it would make a bell curve, right? Yeah. So it would be around five. So not even necessarily a bell curve. If it was evenly distributed, then you would basically have like every number would have the same probability of occurring. Yeah, exactly. It'd be like, like a flat line. And so you, you could do it with the distribution like you're talking about as well. But even if it was random and like you had any kind of an, an even distribution of numbers across, you know, those different sectors, however you want to play, uh, you know, with the distribution, you could get different results. But I think the end result would end up being the same that when you, when you chop off the people who don't make it, you know, on this extinction level event in a meteor strike or something, the group that you're left with, that new average is higher than the average or than the barrier that they had to overcome. So you, you observe just purely through probabilistic, you know, means you, you observe an overcorrection in the surviving population. So like, if you wanted to put like a characteristic to, it could be like holding your breath, like everybody died, you couldn't hold their breath for five minutes. Okay, so they all died. So then the average breath holding time of everybody who survived would be higher than that average that they had to overcome. Okay. Or like the, the giraffes on the plains in Africa and if a certain level of tree branches got destroyed, only yes. the tall. Yes, very good. It, it'd be the exact same thing. And so and so there's there, there's this idea that that, that Nassim talks about where you know, it's, it's an overcorrection. And I thought that was an interesting idea, this idea that, you know, we, we can overcorrect to things. And you, you'll, you'll, you'll notice that in this situation, any one individual player isn't making a choice to overreact. It's just the behavior of the group, or the, let me say the, the character races of the group that have that overreaction. But uh, I, that was kind of a, a theme of some things that I was exploring last week was this idea of overreaction and how it can be beneficial and here is just one example of the over of the overreaction. Again, completely, you know, it wasn't like they made a, a a sentient choice to overreact. It was just that's how the population would would end up surviving. That the, the effect would be an overreaction. Um, you know, one of the things that Nassim attacks in Antifragile and 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 in his other works as well is this idea of pursuing efficiency. That efficiency is it leads to fragile results so that if you if you fine tune something to some set of circumstances you're you're fragile to changes in those circumstances and uh, i like that idea as well i like the idea that as kind of as 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 living things we we evolve to have some slack in the system to respond to a variety of different things like you think one of the benefits of being warm-blooded is that now we have this range of temperatures we can survive in we didn't we didn't we didn't evolve to survive at one temperature, we evolved to live in a range of, uh, of temperature. So that would be just another example of this and attacking efficiency and instead of focusing on something else, you know, this, in, in one case, an overreaction, in other cases, just, just general slack in the system that has benefits as well. Right. So if you had that, that population where you had a variety and the amount of time people could hold their breath, um, then that gives you a buffer in, in the sense that if there was a requirement 
from natural selection that you had to hold your breath for five minutes or longer to survive, you would still have a population that would remain. But how how is that considered an overreaction? It seems like it would just be the perfect amount of um, people that would survive. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So it's only it's only an overreaction in, in the sense that the people who survived, it wasn't as if, as if the population narrowed on that barrier that the new average of the population is actually higher than the barrier. So it's only an overreaction to the extent that the new population is better equipped to handle that same barrier than they you know, need to be you know, in, in some sense, that the, that the average doesn't move towards the barrier, it actually moves above it. And so it's only an overreaction from that perspective. And um, I guess I, I just found that a very interesting result. And I think it's an easy enough thing to, to, to think through that I think all of us can kind of picture that in our heads. But it's this idea that we as humans now, you know, that, and, and I say humans, as any animal, that is the case now. I mean, as, as living things, we have survived any number of events. And every time that we overcame an event, the people who made it as a whole are better equipped to handle that same event. And in fact, we're overprepared in some sense to handle that same event. And so it's just kind of this interesting idea of, you know, life as a process, evolution as a process, society as a process, you know, we are constantly, you know, even if we don't want to, again, like I said, this is purely just, you know, the distribution causes, it has nothing to do with anybody making a choice, that as we live, we are evolving, whether we want to or not, as, as a population, whether we want to or not, we are always evolving towards something. That is always true. But it's also true that the steps we take are sometimes unexpected. And I think this is maybe one of those results where it's unexpected that we would end up being overcompensated for having overcome that barrier beforehand, that we, we are, we are, we far exceed what we would need to overcome that same barrier again in the future. Okay. So, so before we're more generally able to handle disruptions in the system, but after the disruption, um, what comes is a more, more specified, more specialized group that can handle those conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Better, better equipped, better prepared, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. Does that take away any resilience from future issues that are of different natures? You know, in that case, like, say like, what if, yeah, just in a, as an example, I guess with the breathing, um, I guess it doesn't really make sense, but if there was a requirement that you had to have a shorter, um, amount of time that you could hold your breath, like your population at that point would be kind of screwed, right? Yeah. And so, but, but there even, even still said that the, if, as long as it wasn't an extinction level event where it killed everybody, the group that then survived on the lower barrier would again, find their average shift to, in this case, let's say to the left of that barrier. So let's say that like after the, the, the six, you know, number event, whatever group was left, say that another one happened that was like at seven. Now the group that's, that, that survives will be, the average will be lower than seven. So like even then, even if you uh, pass the barrier and overcompensate on one side of that barrier, if that same barrier were to hit you again, or a, a, a slightly higher barrier were to hit you again, then you would, you would find that the population again would, would overcompensate by moving to the left of, of that barrier, you know, depending on, on, on who's being killed out basically. So as long as you have a population that survives, the average of that population will, will be, you know, slightly off. As long as there are some people in that group whose value is lower than that barrier. So you know, as long as you're surviving, you're going to move to the other side of that, of that number. So 
but but you make a good point. I mean, obviously, you know, we, that's I we're never we're never done filling the void of our environment. You know, that's like when I think of evolution, it's like we are we are like filling the filling the container of this space of situations that we can encounter, and we're never done doing that. And as we are evolving to one environment that environment is itself changing. So, I mean, there's always a, it's always a matter of chasing a moving target with evolution. That's why it's never, it never is done and it never will be done. We're always responding to the past. And in that process, while that time is happening, what we are evolving to is also changing. You know, that environment's also changing. So um, good, good point. Okay, great. Yeah, it's, it's always a transient process. It's always a transient process, and I, I really like this idea of of overreaction. You know, one of the one of the, the quotes that Nassim has, I won't get it quite right, but it's something to the effect of that uh, excess energy to and overreaction to some set of events is what leads to innovation. That you know we're we're faced with with some challenge in our life, and we respond to that challenge, and in that process of overreacting, end up with innovation or change or something like that too. So I thought that was interesting as well. And, um, and that, that, that ties into a point that I wanted to talk with you about. I think that this is a thing that, that you have mentioned before that I, that I wanted to put kind of in a, in a different context, but the, this idea of how manners and learned behavior limit the actions we consider as individuals in certain situations and certain moments of our life. And so I wanted to put that in the context of considering the totality of the solution space at any point in time that you're alive in, that wherever you are in your life, there's likely more options on at your disposal than you're aware of. And I think that sometimes we, through learned behavior, we just blind ourselves to certain outcomes, you know, or to, to certain behaviors. And I think this ties into you know, something that I consider you to be kind of an expert in these, these, these social, you know, realms, basically that, um, and this, this is a process that, that you've described to me, but, you know, you've spent maybe the past few years trying to understand these self-imposed limitations and the harder work of how to overcome them. And I, you know, to me, what I see that putting that in, in the context, in, in the context of Nassim Taleb and looking for value through optionality, that is a process of giving yourself more options in your life whether it's in a social setting or, you know, whatever the setting may be, the, the whole point is to give yourself more options to pick from to have a better outcome. Yeah, that reminds me of a movie I just watched, actually. But before I tell you about that movie, I need to adjust my lighting real quick. Yeah, go ahead and turn down the sun. And uh, before Joe comes back, if anybody's, you know, had a glitch on their computer, couldn't see it, again, next weekend, join us, Phil Lacavara, talking about false flags from Catalina Press. But anyways, Joe, thanks for turning down the sun a little bit. And uh, anyways, yes, back to back, back to the movie and the idea of considering the whole of this solution space. I really need to uh, fire my gaffer, my current gaffer for not doing the job right now. Um, the movie the movie I saw, it's called Captain Fantastic. Have, have you ever seen that movie or heard of it? It sounds familiar. Tell me tell me who's, uh, who's in it. Oh my gosh, it was really good. Um, it, so the main, the star character is Viggo Mortensen which is another story in its own because I, I started the movie and I knew that it was Aragon or Strider, but I couldn't remember his actor name. I couldn't remember his actor name the whole time. So I was just, I, I kind of made it a test for myself to see if I could come up with a name by the end of the episode, by the end of the movie. 
which ended up just being more torture than anything. You know, there's, it's right. one of the worst things you have something on the tip of your tongue and you can't come up with the name. And it's like, oh, I know it, I can come up with it, but it's just not there. And then you just relax for like a couple hours and it comes to you. Uh, anyways, it was like a two hour movie and, it came until the end. and then and in the end credits, it's like Vigo. I'm like, oh yeah, there's no way I would have gotten Vigo. No, no, no. Vigo's um, too hard to name. Yeah, I, but I had like names pop in that kind of came up with it, but Good I don't know. It, it's just, oh, he's great, dude. He had a beard like halfway through the movie and then he shaved nice. it and I was like, there's the moneymaker. That's yeah. Cool. No, he's very handsome, man. I always, you know, back in our, in our, you and I what would have been in our, in our grade school days, all the girls liked Legolas, you know, Orlando Bloom was the heartthrob. But really, if we're being honest, the heartthrob of Lord of the Rings was Aragon, 100%. And uh, that's still true to this day. I mean, he's a very handsome man. Uh, but anyways, I digress. Back to, back to the movie. Uh, so this movie came heavily recommended to me by a couple of different people, which led me to watch it last night. And what it's about is it's about Viggo Mortensen. He lives out in the forest or just a remote living with like five or six of his kids. And it's essentially documents how he like homeschools his children. Oh, yeah. yeah. Makes his own uh, curriculum for them. So they read all like the great literature and he like asks the right questions. Like, no, when he asked for a review on a book, um, one example was he asked one of his kids about the book Lolita, right, which is the which is a, a famous book from like the 1950s uh, made by a, a, a Russian author that was studying at Stanford at the time. And it's a book about uh, basically how he's a pedophile and how he like, becomes obsessed with this 12 year old. And so Vigo in one of the scenes asks the daughter like, what, what's the book about? And then she says like, oh, it's about, you know this pedophile dude that follows this girl around, takes this girl around with him as he travels. And he's like, no, like what's the implications? And it's like, that was like a question that typically doesn't get asked or like really well thought out during school a lot of times. Like a lot of the curriculum is very plot centered. And then she went on to describe how like, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story because it's told from the perspective of the pedophile, from the guy that has these, you know, infatuations with these young girls. And it's like disgusting, but it's also like, you feel bad for him at the same time and you really can empathize with him. Hmm. So it's, it's a weird mind trip for the brain, but yeah, but through this homeschooling, he's able to teach the kids stuff like that. And like they play music and they, they hunt their own game and they don't eat any GMOs or any of this stuff. And uh, one of the big scenes is like uh, a family member dies and the whole clan has to go into the city and the civilization to like um, to go to this wedding or to go to this funeral. And it shows them at like a diner and the kids are like, hey, daddy, what's what's a milkshake? What's a, what's a grilled cheese sandwich? And then they go to like some other kid's house and like they're like playing these video games and they're just they're just like shocked and all like overstimulated and shit like that. Right. It's an interesting movie about going back to what you were saying about like the labels and what labels are programmed into people beforehand versus what labels are just intrinsic and natural to, that people have. And then it comes down to where to draw the line. Like in the beginning, I kind of started off with saying that this homeschool ideology and methodology is superior um, just because of the sense that you can teach people things. Like all these kids could recite the Bill of Rights. They could recite all the presidents. Like they just, they're just very well educated. But um, towards the end of the movie, it's like one of this, the, the uh, children was accepted to college and the Vigo Mortensen was like, why do you need to go to college? You already know everything. 
And he's like, yeah, I know everything out of the book, but in terms of the world, I know nothing. And it was just a uh, kind of left it open-ended like that. Like there's pros and cons. Yeah. I think that's something that as more and more learning, well, I think we're seeing it right now is with online learning. I mean, that's from coronavirus is this idea of what, what does it mean to learn something? What is the purpose of school? You know, what, what can you get from a YouTube video? And then, but what can't you get from YouTube video? I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that we're all having to realize is like, Hey, this online learning, something's missing from that actually. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I don't know, anybody could put, you know, a finger on it, but it turns out that even with all this technology and everything else, there's still a reason to put a kid in the classroom. Like that's what we're learning. And so, you know, hopefully, you know, maybe one of the silver linings, I guess, of COVID is that we maybe put more time into trying to figure out not only what is the purpose of, of education, but also what, what, what is it that having a good teacher in the classroom brings to that environment? And that, you know, can that become something that we look for? And I, obviously we already do, but can we better figure out what that thing is to try to find more of it? because I kind of this point is from this movie that you're talking about here is that obviously education is important. I mean, that's, you know, humans, you know, kind of become adults through that process to some extent, obviously some of it also is just through things that have nothing to do with learning, but learning is definitely a part of growing up and, you know, to figure out how to better access the, the, the toolkit that good teachers have. Um, I don't know. I mean, I can think back on good teachers I had on bad teachers I had and I, and I, even with that in mind, it would still be hard for me to try to figure out like what, what was that key ingredient, you know, that they, that they had that made them better at their job. And then the same thing too, with, with, with classes, like which classes do I find, you know, were more important for me as I've gotten older versus ones that I thought were not that valuable at all. Yeah. It begs the question, what makes a good education? Is it, is it understanding of, you know, history, understanding of how to do complex problems? Um, or are there some more intangible values that education has to offer, like being in a class, like learning how to deal with the socio status of everyone in the class and teachers and, you know, dealing with bullies and you know, dealing with, you know, girls or boys, you know, there's just an infinite amount of like stimulation from different people coming from all over that, uh, especially with coronavirus, that's like putting us in an isolation. It's putting us, keeping us at home, keeping us in our dorm rooms, keeping us wherever studying. Um, so it, it, that has to have a big impact on what the future generations will look like, I would imagine. Um, but just think about like some of your school experiences. Like what do you remember a lot of, you know, oh, that was really good learning that particular topic. Or do you think like, oh, that teacher was real good. Like that teacher was really suave or charismatic. Yeah. That's a good question. I think, you know, when I think back on subjects that I really enjoyed, um, you know, I was like maybe one of five people I know who enjoyed geometry. That was probably my, my favorite math in high school was geometry. Um, and I really enjoyed chemistry as well. Um, I've actually have grown to like chemistry quite a bit less <laughs> as I've gotten older, but I really enjoyed it for some reason in, in, uh, in, in high school. Probably the, the subject that I enjoyed the most was uh, a class that I took in college that was basically, you know, so my degree is in chemical engineering um, and kind of the, the, the cornerstone of all chemical engineering 
stems from this uh, class called transport phenomena. And I'm not going to go into a diatribe about that, what that is. But what I, what, what I will say is that what made that class interesting is, and what makes transport phenomena interesting is that you find out that through three topics that apparently have nothing to do with each other, which one would be heat transfer, one would be mass transfer, and the one would be momentum transfer, that all these things that are at their heart seemingly very different are actually very similar in terms of the math that describes them and are similar in terms of the intuition that you use for understanding them. And so that was kind of the, the, the first class where there was a lot of effort into trying to frame uh, physical phenomena into abstract terms. And I found that process to be very enjoyable, but there was also a phenomenal teacher for that class as well, who had just a, a mastery of the, of the subject and made it very accessible as well. And so, you know, what I, when I think back to your question, you know, what made that class so special is that it was, besides from the, the physical phenomena that we were covering, it was this idea of, of shifting a conversation from the physical world to the abstract world then kind of back to the physical world. Like that's how you made the connection. Like you had this, this one phenomenon over here, it would abstract, and then you would have this world of abstract equations that you would then you would then bring down to describe another, you know, thing. And, you know, that, that connection and exploring that connection um, to me was, was interesting. Kind of learning that framework from how to think was what made that class uh, entertaining for me and also interesting. Yeah, I think back to my Heaton, mass transfer class and there's the same thing like just taking some physical properties from the world running it through some some equations or some system of equations and then popping out an answer that relates back to the physical world and just seeing that repeated course over course over course was uh, def definitely influential in shaping my view of the world and how the world works i think there were other classes too that had some philosophical value to me like uh like coding, for example, yeah. Like MATLAB coding, like just it's it's really just a, a lesson in logic that's hidden behind equations. Yeah, and I thought that was super useful. But I agree. I, uh, back at at college and school, like I think more of the the experiences I had outside of the classroom than inside the classroom. I would have to mm -hmm. say, that more memorable to me. I think so too. Let me, before we move on to computer or from computer programming, let me just say one thing about computer programming. I, I agree with hundred percent about the logic part. And I think, you know, I was, I was thinking about this uh, last week actually, but so in Scott Adams book, loser thing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he has these chapters thinking like a historian, thinking like a scientist, thinking like an engineer, thinking like a psychologist, you know, maybe a few more art artists maybe as well. The one that I thought he was missing from there would have been thinking like a computer scientist. And the reason I say that is because there's there, the, the way that a computer solves problems is this idea of taking something complex, putting it into something simple, and repeating that simple task over and over again. And I, I think there's a lot of value in thinking about problems that way, about learning how to take a complex problem, breaking it apart into something that is simple and understandable, and then building up from that again. I think that is an immensely powerful lesson to learn in life, and one that is at the heart of computer science is, you know, computers can do like three things basically, or, you know, like some number of small number of things, but this world that we have around us is, is from smart people who figured out how do I build those simple building blocks into these, you know, programs, these collections of small repeatable tasks to achieve some result that is, you know, mind boggling. Like right now we're on Zoom, right? You know, like, well, what is Zoom? Like at its heart, it's gonna be, 
a bunch of if and statements, like or something along those lines, right? Like it's going to be a bunch of simple code that someone's re- is is repeating over and over again. And so I think that that process is extremely important for all of us to put our mindsets into. And I think that was if I could uh, if I could ask Scott, you know, maybe for like you know the second version or you know the second edition of Lucifer thing, maybe include a chapter on how to think like a computer scientist. That would be kind of a cool one, I think. And one that he would be able to, because he has he has some background in computer science, obviously with the WhatsApp and those kind of things. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And that begs a question because there are two different types of problems in the world. It seems there's problems that are just, you know, the problems are limited by how many beans you can count at once. And I would say that's kind of like the 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 Zoom problem that you posed earlier. It's it's just how do you how do you count these bits and pieces? from one area and then put them on, package them on the internet and then reassemble them on the other side. And there are some, some efficiencies that you can develop along the way, but largely it's just, how do I count this big, big pile of beans and then reassemble it over here? And it's more of a, a computational type of problem, mm-hmm. um, but there's also you know, creative problems out yeah. there in the world. Like what's the best form of leadership? Like that's something that can't just be resolved with a bunch of ones and zeros and if, if and statements necessarily. I, yeah, I totally agree, 100%. Um, so I, what's the, I guess I, I, maybe that would be a problem not best suited for the computer scientist to solve, but- No, right. I don't know. Which, maybe which, for the psychologist or for the historian or someone along those lines. And that's what I, I like about his book is that he kind of shows like how each mindset's important and then you want to have the right tool for the job. So like you don't want the artist to solve the psychology problem. You don't want the psychology problem to be solved by the engineer. You don't want, you know, like everybody, you know, whether as an individual or even as a specialist, you know, recognizing your own limitations and not, you know, not because I know he does a lot about getting out of your lane, which is important too, but bringing the right tool for the, for the job and you know, bringing the right mindset to the table will determine uh, the success you have of solving whatever problem you're dealing with. So I totally agree with you. I wouldn't want the computer scientist to solve the problem of democracy per se. Uh, but at the same time, I, I wouldn't want the artist designing the next website either. You know, I wouldn't want, you know, everybody to develop a, you know, what he was called a, a talent stack or something along those lines uh, for solving these different problems. That was that, that was one kind of mindset that I wish he would have explored a little bit in his book and, you know, maybe in the next edition, we'll be lucky enough and he will, we'll see, maybe, you know, if he's a fan of the podcast, maybe he'll uh, take, it, take it into account. Yeah, there you go. Very good. Well, I, I didn't want to, I, I have, a, I have a few more things, but I wanted, if you had anything you wanted to share from last week, I would uh, turn over to you if you want. Yes. Uh, talking about psychology, it reminded me that listening to one of Scott Adams periscopes, one of his latest claims is that, so he has a long history of being able to debunk different areas or different specialties or different things that he really doesn't have any experience with. Like, for example, the, what is it called? The, the financial advisory industry, which is, you know. Let me, let me put know, up the, the, the number again from uh, Alex Berenson talking yeah. about that two weeks ago. Yes. You know, him or, or Nassim. Yep. But they, there's stats that 94% of uh, professional investors don't beat the S&P index. So um, there's this whole system of financial advisors that just for the sheer fact that people don't understand money and they don't understand the market, that they take these people's monies and then they invest them across like a wide range and 
hundreds of thousands of different uh, single stocks or ETFs or mutual funds. And they do it just to make it super complicated so people don't understand where their money is and that they find value in their advisor that's handling the money. And it's a, it's a scam industry because if someone were just to diversify in you know, an S&P index fund or something like that, they would actually receive superior results, more simplicity, and, and, and they would have more visibility into where their money is. But it's like this financial, this financial oh, industry right. yeah. complicating things so that they can hook people in and keep them there. And then you get generational wealth that gets passed on and they keep, they keep growing it even though they get subpar returns. So that's one example of an industry he debunked. He claims that he debunked another industry, which was uh, the business how-to industry. So things have changed a little bit, like you know, how to fail at anything and win, still win big is a more modern type of self-help book or business type book. And there's other books like that. But before that, and before Dilbert came alive, there were a lot of just like BS, like, scamsters out there writing like business books like just real like cliche titles and just really not saying anything um kind of like rich dad poor dad which i think is kind of borderline transition between those two times yeah but he he claims okay, let me so i think so let me cut you in give because i think i know some examples i want to hear from you give, give some examples of like just like stupid business advice that you would have heard like I can think of some examples my myself, and this is actually something that something that Nassim talks about as well. But so if anyone's listening is not familiar, because you and I I think have read our, our fair share of self help books, mostly from like Sky Adams types. But you know, give our audience an idea of like some of these books that would have just been complete waste of time to for someone to read. Right, like some topics would be like, oh, follow your passions. Just go follow your passions, and then success will just come to you. Or uh, just define big goals. Like set big goals, and you'll you'll, you'll be unstoppable. And just like weird, like metaphysical, like unprovable claims like that, that just really don't make any sense. And that was like the major industry. That was like a big freaking industry back in the day. But since then, that's gone away. Um, what, what would Nassim say are some of those? Yeah. So like one of the ones is like, uh, and he actually talks about this. I think this might be in his book, Fooled by Randomness. But it's like this idea of, you know, this person followed a bunch of millionaires and said, you know, all these millionaires have all these habits. And Nassim's point's like, okay, don't you think that a lot of people have those habits and that, that it also is the case that these millionaires also have these habits? It's basically the problem of like a silent graveyard. It's like to be a millionaire, you need to get up by five o'clock every day. It's like, let me tell you something right now. Even if that were true, a whole bunch of people get up at five o'clock every day that are not millionaires. Like it's just, you're, you're not taking into account the whole sample space with, with some of these books. And it, you end up coming around with advice that's like, essentially worthless because it's not giving you what actually led to the millionaires being successful. It's here's this trait that a bunch of people have. Also, some millionaires have it too. It's like, what's the point of that? Nothing. Yeah. But it but it solves a book. So it, you know it's fine. Yeah, just because Warren Buffett drinks three Coca-Colas a day doesn't mean that drinking Coca-Cola every day will give you any type of success. Exactly right. And even if every millionaire drank Coca-Cola every day, it wouldn't matter. Because guess what? Oh, the majority of people who drink Coca-Cola are not millionaires. <laughs> so, I mean, it just doesn't tell you anything. It's just, it's not seeing the uh, signal through the noise or it's just not, you're not seeing the whole sample space to know how predictive this trait is of success. Mm -hmm. And 
I mean, I can think of other examples, like let's, let's say for the moment that to be good looking or to be a movie star, you have to be good looking. That may be true. It is not true that if you're good looking, you will become a movie star, right? Like you, one is a necessity, but it isn't enough. And so it's easy on the tail end to look at all of these things that people have had that are successful, all the things that they had, but it's a mistake to think that people who are unsuccessful lack those traits. There are plenty of people who are good looking that will not make it as actors. Just unfortunately, because there's just so few actors in the world. So um, it's really easy to find those traits and then sell them to people. But when you tell them this is what you need, it's a lie because they need a lot more than that. Like one thing is luck. <laughs> and you're not going to find that anywhere. So the biggest item for especially like acting, right? Yeah. For Channing Tatum, like I think they just got picked up off the side of the road, essentially, or just sitting in a restaurant or bartending or something, and then you know right. Hollywood pastor came in and just found them. Like Matthew McConaughey, same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Massive amounts of luck compounded with good looks and skill. Yeah, and I, um, I would say even like some of the classics that I've read. So like I've read the the uh, Dale Carnegie. And I, I I like Dale Carnegie. I'm not going to hate on Dale sure. Carnegie, but like if you read that book. A lot of it's kind of like, okay, like, sure, like, I, I guess, like, I mean, it's not, I mean, it's a very long book. And I, again, I, I, I recommend that it's fine, but like, I wouldn't say that that book was life-changing for me. And I would say that a lot of the advice in it was like, yeah, all right. <laughs> I think that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People can be yeah. something. Huh, that's interesting. It, it kind of has the same ring as How to Fail at Everything and Still Win Big, right? It's, the titles are similar in that way. But yeah. if I could sum it in one sentence, it would be, let's see, it would be make people like you by listening to them talk. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> by being a listener to their words. Make, which, other, make other people like you by you liking them. Like, to put, it in like, to put it in terms of Twitter, get followers by following other people. Like, that's what it would be. Like, that would be the whole book. <laughs> yeah, which is good advice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but going back, so just knowing that notion that there are like well-established industries out there, like financial investment or business or just, they're probably all over, but. Yeah. Well, just Con Confusopoly, right? I mean, that would be the Skyam's term for a lot of this stuff would be the, the, the Confusopoly where. Oh, financial investments for sure. Yeah. Or like cell phones or, you know, there's a bunch of industries like that where, you know, by your inability as a layman to compare two things because of, because of how complex it is, you essentially just end up picking one. Like that's the business, right? Like that's what it is. Yeah. And the, the latest industry that he's taken on is the psychology industry. So he wow. made a bold claim that the psychology industry is completely bullshit, which. So him and Tom we... Cruise will be, well, no, I'm sorry, Tom Cruise attacks psychiatry. So let me, let me take that back. I apologize for that. I mean, let me well, take that back. To some extent too. But when he said it, it made sense to me because I thought back to a lot of the psychology majors that I know. And I'm like, really? Like, be it just didn't add up that the people that I knew were psychologists were supposedly correcting all of these complicated mental issues that people have, um, you know, specifically with like anxiety and depression. Like, I don't <laughs> I don't know very many people that have been able to cure their anxiety and depression. Um, you know, let alone, let, let alone even improve it to some degree without just some drug that has 
more of a shotgun approach to fixing the problem. Let me back up a little bit. He describes like the entire mental situation of people. Like there's many different um, symptoms of problems that you can have. Like maybe you have a fear of big spaces or maybe you have anxiety or maybe you have stress or maybe you have attention deficit. But these are kind of just very general blurbs of bubbles and of ideas and problems that are happening. And then the drugs to com combat these issues are, are more or less just, like I said, a shotgun approach to fixing them. Like there's no exact science to any of this. Like it's just kind of, I'm trying to think of a, a crude example where you're just mixing big chemistries and problems and sometimes coming up with solutions. And no, no pun intended. Yeah. And especially like to say like, and one of the examples he used was narcissism and how the psychology is designed. Narcissism is a problem. But if you look at narcissism specifically, it's just a self-centered point of view, which is really all that any human can do. Like it's impossible to live your life from someone else's uh, perspective in any real meaningful way. And you, you're, you're largely just concerned about your own problems. And the notion that people call narcissists, narcissists and consider it a problem is a uh, is something that he was challenging because if you look at narcissists, like a lot of them are largely successful and largely happy. So the people that get upset by the narcissist are more or less people that are just jealous of the narcissist to begin with. Does that make sense? I, I can understand what he's saying. Absolutely. Um, so I think that's ever since he said that, whenever I hear people talk about narcissists or call someone a narcissist, it's more like, Oh, Jealousy. This person is just jealous of that person. And well, it, it reminds me of uh, back to our conversation uh, last weekend or the weekend before about intent versus outcome. Like, say that somebody builds a building, and as a result, this community has a whole bunch of jobs and people can go on vacation there. And it's like, if the person came out tomorrow and said, I only did that so I can make money, like, who gives a shit? Like, I don't care. Like, why, why do I care? Like, I like that with the hotel here. Like, exactly. why, why do you work every day? Yeah, it's like, like why do I care? Like, in, in my view, narcissism and, and fixating on it, it's, you know, obviously, if you are so self-centered that you are ruining relationships in your life, you know, that would be different. Like, that would be something to address. But mm -hmm. if you're not hurting yourself, if you're not, you know, losing something i guess you know i would almost define it as if there's no consequence then why do you why do you care you know it kind of reminds me of like how dr drew defines addiction is continued use in the face mm -hmm. of consequence like that makes sense to me like like if you if you drink every day and as a result you're late to work and you miss your kid's soccer game it's like that's a problem like you're having a consequence like that to me that's easy to see um and I think the same thing would be true with anybody who's, who's like narcissistic. Like if you're to the point where you're so self-centered, you don't have any friends, that would be a problem, I think. Like, I think you would want to fix that. But if you're also, if somebody calls you that because, you know, you put your name on a building or something, you know, mm -hmm. why would, why would I care? I don't, I, I wouldn't find that they'd be a problem to be concerned with. Yeah. It's like, if the narcissist is the subject of the problems, then it's, yeah, it's in the narcissist court to fix it or to get rid of it but if the yeah. narcissist is doesn't have the problems 
and the person feeling the pain is the observer of the narcissist and it's like who cares the observer just needs to get over it and like mind their own business you know like live, stay in their lane mind their own lives right and right. that yeah. seems to be what most psychological problems are stemming from or where they came to be is just the have-nots just upset that they don't have what the haves have well and i would even say it differently i would say that if you're with someone who is so self-centered that they treat you poorly then you get out of that relationship right i mean that again that seems i i let me i don't want to trivialize people that are that are in really abusive settings i'm not i'm not talking about that i'm saying that if you're if you have a friend or you know i don't know a boyfriend or girlfriend who you don't find interesting because they're only ever talking about themselves just date somebody else. I mean, that seems like a problem to me that it's like, don't try to fix them. Don't try to label them yeah, as having a Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so again, I want to make sure that I, you know, I understand, you know, there are people who are in, you know, like you know, truly abusive environments. I'm not, I'm not going to touch that. That's very serious. I'm talking about if you're with someone who is, you know, you find that they only talk about themselves, that they don't ask you how you're doing, that they make you unhappy, find a better friend. Don't waste your time trying to get them to read the latest book on how to cure your narcissism or something. Just make a new friend. That, that, that seems to me. Let me let me build off of the psychology point. I, I will tell you, I, I imagine you feel the same way. I am, and I say this as someone who is a fan of Dr. Drew, but I, I always dislike the aspect of trying to diagnose from a distance with some of these things. Like one thing that I don't like is when you'll see people on TV try to like diagnose somebody else from like news clips or, you know, a talk interview or like, like, oh, you know, like that's, you know, that person's giving, giving off these traits. So you see like body language, like, oh, you see how they're holding hands. That means that, you know, uh, you know, secretly he's a, uh, you know, terrorist or something. It's just some something like that. Like I, to me, I'm always like, who, this is all bullshit. I mean, obviously it's all for entertainment, right? Like that's what they do. It's just, it's, it's, it's entertainment for the news. But at the same time, you are using words like psychology and expert that people are going to interpret, hey, this person knows what the hell they're talking about. Well, maybe, but probably not. Like if you're on, if you're making money analyzing celebrity body language on TV, I don't care what you have to say about anything <laughs> or basically. So, you know, that to me, that fits in the same category as like, it's mostly entertainment, but it, it, it the the uh, facade of expertise, I, I worry people take it too seriously sometimes and, uh, you know, use that to think about other people when they probably should not. Yeah, being able to hide behind science or an expert, it, that used to be a thing, I feel like, where you could trust science and trust experts, but not in 2021. I mean, look at the track record of the experts in the science so far. And well, I think it's, it, it became too much about selling entertainment on TV than about, you know, actual rigorous discussion about something. It's all about the second clip that can be put into a YouTube clip that can then be filled in with a bunch of ads. Like that's the business model apparently. And you know, what, what, what do people care about? Like stats and data? No, they care about body language nonsense. They care about, you know, psychology profiles of people at a distance, you know, they care about, you know, this inquisitive inquiry into like, oh, I wonder, you know, I wonder how their sex life is. I wonder about all this other stuff. It's like, this is just like a gossip rag. Like, what am I, this isn't information, this is entertainment. And so I kind of like, uh, I want to say that Nassim Taleb's rule on this is like, when you're going to rewatch the news, don't 
watch any news that pretends to be serious. Just only watch the pure gossip rag trash because you're watching it for entertainment anyway. So just dive full into entertainment and don't worry about anything else. I, I, I kind of like that idea. It's like, it, I am, it's for entertainment. I may as well be, be entertained by it. So, Yeah. I, I am concerned, though, that we are, that there's this a large group of Americans or a large group of the world that just believes anything as long as you say that science says, you know, or experts say, or science says. And then that just gives them freedom to publish whatever propaganda they want to. And people are starting to realize it and they're starting to cash in on that. So it's it's hard to say whether this is a form of entertainment at this point or if it's a form of propaganda because I, I think they would look the same from the, from the front. Yeah, I I agree. I don't like, um, I mean, look, let's just use a funny example. I mean, how many days of the week do you encounter a headline or article that says, you know, a new diet, right? Like, this is the diet. This is the one. Like, cut fat, lose, you know, whatever. Like, this is the one. And like, well, geez, we've been coming up with new diets for a long time. I mean, Oh, have we figured that one out? Yeah, like, no, apparently not. Like, we're still making new ones. Like, they're all, oh, backed by science, backed by whatever. It's like... Yeah, remember the food guide pyramid? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Like, the, the food guide pyramid. I mean, it, it's it's just, uh, I mean, it's just it's just silly stuff, basically. And and I think it just gets back into, you know, teamsmanship. And, you know, you, you find your team and you find the science for your team. And it's because it becomes like a, a bullet in a debate that you try to win an argument and it becomes more about winning an argument than about trying to uncover something, you know, worth uncovering. And yeah. I'm not sure I see the benefit. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure at this point we're boring our listeners by saying that, like, try not to watch the news so much. <laughs> like we've been saying that for like almost every episode. Like I keep on saying it. Like, I don't, I really don't think that people need to watch that much news and um, it, it, it's, let me, let me say this about entertainment. It maybe it's not that it, it, it is entertainment because these companies make money off of advertisement and they want you to be engaged in their content. How it's perceived by the audience is I think a different question. And uh, to your point, I agree with you. I mean, it would be serious if people really thought that, you know, this new diet is the best of the, you know, and they, you know, turns out that it actually wasn't or something. I, I agree with that. It could be, could be upsetting. And um, it just ends up being another form of like teamsmanship or something, you know, it becomes a, a meme or like a hashtag or something that people like, you know, pro, you know science or, you know, whatever it should becomes, becomes a label basically and loses yeah. meaning in the process. It, my, my favorite one is the, is the fact checking industry. Like, because both sides have them. How can it, both sides have fact checking? Like, it's like taking it one level further beyond just yeah. the news reporting it. It's like, well, this pre-identified fact checker that we have no association with yeah. uh, claims this statement to be false or claims this statement to be true. It's like, what, what credentials do these people have to determine if something is true or not that clearly 95% of humanity doesn't have? Like, what makes them qualified to tell if it's true or not? But yeah. it's another form to reaffirm what people want to believe, I suppose. But it's, it's a completely BS industry. Yeah, well, and again, I think that falls into the entertainment side of it too, because it's like, oh, look, here's a new graphic that shows up on our screen. <sighs> Fact checker, you know, it's like bullets and everything. Or like, go back, you know, 10 years. People are like, the no spin zone. Like, really? The no spin zone. All right, hey, everybody, we found it. We found the one unbiased 
uh, talk show line. We, we found it. Yeah. You know, no, no spin. This is all just no, no spin. Like, come on. It's advertising. It's branding. You know, yeah. fact checking is branding. And uh, one more example of how the market runs everything. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, uh, but it, it is an example of how I think advertising corrupts things and how, you know, I think all of us need to be aware of at the end of the day, a studio is trying to make ratings. That's what they're trying to do. I mean, even if it, if there are individual people in the, in the institution who don't want that to be their main focus, I'm, I'm sure that there are, but how does that organization attract shareholders, attract people to work by selling advertising, by selling product? Yeah. And there could be people, you know, it might not just be a fair playing field of what news makes the most money as determined by viewership, but there's like, like we've talked about before, there are big corporations out there with lots of money that can throw that money and influence things in certain ways that they want to. And with such a big wealth distribution or wealth gap in the world, in the US, it's hard to tell the difference between whether it's you know, an organic push from the news camp companies on certain ideas, or if it's backed by big money, by big companies. I mean, if Facebook wants something to be true, I think they have enough money and influence to make that quote unquote true. <laughs> All right, at least hard to figure out. You know, it's not. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think, I think that uh, politician in office, all they got to do is run more ads for them or make it easier for them to run ads. You know, it's, it's scary that that's what it can come down to. I, I agree. It is scary. And I, that goes back to our push about transparency, about, you know, at least let us see the strings, you know, if they're there, let us see the strings behind the system. And uh, I, 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 I agree with you. I agree with a lot of what you're saying, because I think that um, I, I think it is becoming, you know, I think this thing of like how much advertising we're bombarded with every day and like how much skill people put into trying to craft those ads to be as effective as possible. We we're talking about A-B testing last yeah. week, you know, I mean, you know, that's what we're up against. And I don't, <laughs> I don't know if anybody really has a good way to, to fight back at that point. I mean, it's, it's hard to take on Goliath basically, but I mean, I think that is the fight that all of us are in is to try really hard. I mean, I, I think it, let me just pick a non-controversial example, like native advertising, like, what, what does that mean? It means, all right, here's an ad that we're going to disguise as something else. Like, all right, that's kind of weird. Or like now when you and I, or when anybody, when we watch a podcast and someone's like, oh yeah, you know, I've been driving one of these uh, new cars and I like it. It's like, well, are they being paid to say that? Are they saying that because they want to say that? Are they being paid to advertise one thing over the other? I mean, you know, I think, I, I remember back to the, to, uh, the big short, where uh, the character at the end, uh, oh man, I'm not sure. Uh, Christian Bell's character is Michael Michael Berry or Michael Berry in, in real life, um, was saying how you know the most important life, the more the, the most important things in life are the things we do besides business. And I think back to that when I think about this idea of you know these these people who have platforms where they express themselves and how money gets involved with it, and all of a sudden you begin to doubt the authenticity of what they're saying. Yeah. You know, to me, it's like, where does, where does the authenticity in, in a world where 
there is so much money to be made in social media, in advertising, in, in podcasts like ours. It, where does the authenticity begin and where does the marketing begin? And I mean, as we move forward in time, whatever gap exists, I only see it shrinking where it's like, is the future going to be all of us walking around with like, you know, product that we're trying to sell somebody else? I mean, is that going to be the future that we just become the billboard? I don't know, but I hope it does not become that because I like being able to talk to somebody and get their honest opinion without having to wonder, geez, are, are, what, are what they saying coming through four filters of like HR legal, you know, bullshit that prevents them from like trying to have to actually feel like, is that what I'm, is that, the, is that the future? I hope it isn't. Yeah. And it ties back to the, the merit of living life like Captain Fantastic did, like Vigo did, right? right? Yeah. Like just being out in the middle of nowhere away from the, the capitalistic machine of society. And I mean, I, as somebody who calls himself a, a capitalist, I guess I would call myself or a libertarian, et cetera. Like I, I have always have had, and I've had very sincere friends challenged by the point of what is your answer to consumerism? I think that's a great question. I mean, I really do. It's like, geez, like, do I want life to just become one giant market? I don't, I, I don't you know what, you know what, what makes life worth living is not, a product or a brand or, you know, brand loyalty, it's, it's something else. And, you know, obviously the virtues of, of ownership and private property, I think are important. It's also important to us that there's more to life than those things. And more than that, there is a corrupting quality to your relationships when the money comes in between how you talk to other people. Mm -hmm. I think it comes down to the, the solution I see is training people to be able to be exposed to these types of things and not be influenced by them. Like, I think that that's a little extreme to go and say, oh, I'm going to move my entire clan out in the middle of the Oregon forest. But I think that if you can immunize yourself to the bullshit from the media, and you can do that by reading books like Loser Think or How to Influence. Fail It. Yeah. In things we've talked about before is you need to immune immunize yourself against the bullshit yeah and that's a lot easier said than done because it's a, it takes years to study and understand how your own mind works and your own brain works and your own tendencies and what your soft spots are and what's easy for you to believe and hard to believe but if we had a culture of people that were more independent in and more selective in the ideas presented to them uh, we'd be in a much better space, a space that's much closer, looks a lot closer to logic than whatever we have now. I agree. And I would just add to that. What I would like is, and I don't know how we get this, but, you know, a return to, or not even a return, let's just say a creation of spaces where we just don't have any advertising, like mm -hmm. in our personal lives. It's like, okay, between the hours of like, nine to five, I'm doing business, but the hours beyond that, I'm not. And I'm not going to be responsible for, you know, business type things. And I'm not going to expose myself to business type things. Like you almost need to have, you know, like a space where you and your friends go where it's like, okay, beyond this barrier, we're not talking about anything involving, you know, what we're selling, what we're money or anything like that. It's completely off limits. And just purposely creating environments where we are not exposing ourselves to 
commercial influence because I, I think um, you know, I just remember I wish I could like I wish I could remember the movie but I just remember there was a I was watching some movie with like a bodybuilding or something in it and there was a scene where they were filming people out one of these like bodybuilding expos and yeah. everybody had on a shirt that was like a different protein shake brand or a different you know gym product brand I just remember thinking like I can't imagine having to live my life essentially having to like be a billboard for somebody else, you know, it's like, yeah, buy a muscle max for the best ones, you know, buy whatever, whatever. It's like, is that true? Do you really believe that? Like you're being paid to say that? Like, it's just, I, it, it was just sickening to me to watch this. And like, they were like, they had this one shot of like people on the elevator and like people were like, were like trying to get in front of the camera to like show their brand or something. Yeah. It was just upsetting to me. It was like, my God, like, and this is what we've come up with in, you know, 2000 years of civilization. And like, what do we have? It's like people turning their bodies into a billboard. It like, it just seems uh, cheap to me almost. I don't uh, that, That's how I would describe it. Yeah. And especially with all those proteins, like everyone's got their own, their own blend of protein. It's like, how different can it be? Yeah. How different can it be? <laughs> Like why, why pick one protein over the other at this point? Like no. science isn't going to help you choose the right one. Um, all oh, these guys, science. you have like 5,500 ingredients in the back of that fucking thing. You're going to read every ingredient. These things are like, words are this fucking long. Yeah. And they all interact with each other and it's, yeah. they're, they're all on steroids. So you can't tell is, are they really that jacked because of, because of their special, special sauce and their protein. Right. Allegedly. <laughs> The three thousand milligrams of testosterone they're injecting twice a day. You know, it's what really makes the difference there. Yeah. But I would like to get to your story. I think you said you had one, right? Yes, yes, yes. Let me, let me. So let, let let's let's shift gears. So yeah, we're talking about about the how we want to limit corporate interests in our lives. And so let me just also mention, of course, we're on Twitter as well at roses underscore rhetoric. Be sure to follow us there. And of course, our website www rosesandrhetoric.com also on youtube if you search roses and rhetoric our channel will come up as well we are you know recording these live on zoom obviously then we're posting them online to uh youtube as well so yeah let me let me shift gears let me let me let me put the car in park a little bit if you will and, and shift gears a little bit so i have a story that i wrote kind of following on the theme of uh stream of consciousness type writing it jumps around a little bit but i think all in all this piece came together you know pretty nicely in the end. So I, I, I call this piece pressure, pressure. Future generations will be perplexed by our seemingly passive approach to death. And it will be seen that the great evil of religion was the idea of an afterlife, which greatly contributes to this attitude. It is the most unnatural aspect of religious belief. In fact, the attempt of a passive attitude towards death is a uniquely human phenomenon. So many simply accept the great genocide of human mortality. The great irony of the modern age is the traffic jam. Nowhere else is something as miraculous as the experience of consciousness, the last true mystery of the universe spent in such a tremendously wasteful environment. How have we as humans come to allow such a squandering of opportunity we hear much talk about the conversation about reducing waste. Why do we lack the same enthusiasm for, for preventing the abundant waste of human experience? And why do some people refuse to signal when they switch lanes? 
My car is nothing special. A make and model familiar to all and a color familiar, familiar to most. It signals modest means, but ultimately it signals my fear of a car payment. I do regular maintenance, which means that when a light comes on, I bring it in. For the most part, my car runs fine. The brakes screech, but the screech means they're working. That's literally true. But who makes the music and who makes the sound? And in my car, there's usually plenty of sound. I came to music late in life, preferring silence well into my late teens. But something happened in my early 20s that changed me forever. I discovered dubstep. I believe dubstep is the highest calling of music, and I firmly predict it will stand the test of time. Only predict the inevitable. Everything else is just a guess. Electronic music is a music no longer handicapped by the physical limitations of the human body. The only limits are the imagination of the human mind. With the birth of dubstep, for the first time in a long time, we have proof positive of our limitless potential. God save the bass. But there is, an, there is an unhealthy side of music as well. When it stops being the soundtrack of our lives and instead transforms into a gentle plucking of the harp strings as we slip into a lullaby daydream, we find ourselves no longer awake, but sleeping with our eyes open. That is not to say that all daydreams are bad. Fantasies are fun. And when properly conducted, they can expand the mind. But there is a particular type to be avoided. A healthy daydream is a fantasy that generates self-esteem. An unhealthy daydream is one that leads to self-hatred. It is always a mistake to excessively daydream about the past. This is different from reflection. Reflection is a process where past events are analyzed so that we can learn from them. It is discovering lessons in the past for future application. This is different from a fantasy. We don't engage in fantasies to learn. We engage in them for entertainment. Fantasies about the past are unhealthy because they are an implicit form of self-hatred. You are viewing your past self as unworthy and imagining a better replacement. It is a form of self-hatred that masquerades as an activity we find enjoyable. It is masochism. Think about the past only long enough to learn from it, then move on. And if you see me slow down to make room for your car, move over. My car has been through the paces. It has a fair share of scrapes and bruises. A slow crack on my windshield crawls across the glass. And in my cup holder is an old drink from the night before, inviting me to take that uniquely refreshing sip of a watered down soft drink. Every morning is the same. We enter our car and desperately try to recall the cryptic speech patterns of a forgotten time, etched into the back of our mind. The foggy recollection of the dream world we just left behind. We leave that world and enter this one, the great drama. That great drama, of forgetting to release the parking brake. My fear is that we live in the moments before a truly cataclysmic human event, the death of hope and the conceit to stagnation. It is a drum I have played before, but if I know one thing, it's rhythm. And if I know two things, it's that the truth deserves repeating. And if I know three things, it's that I hate driving, but it is today and this is where I am. We are here and now. It is the only place we have ever been and it is the only place we will ever be. Courage, dying for your sins. Courage, enjoying life as is. Courage, working from where we are. Courage, reclaiming the cosmic perspective. Commute with me, but never be mute with me. 
build a community with me. Hand in hand, we will rebuild this world. Human's greatest achievement, humanity. Someday, but for now, we drive and enjoy the music. Thank you, thank you. Very good. I like the, uh, I like the, the atmosphere illusion there. So the atmosphere song. A great band. Yeah. Um, okay, before I start jumping into some questions, do you, do you have anything high level, like what might've inspired this or what, how this came to fruition? I love dubstep. I always have, I always will. I began listening to bass nectar in probably my second year of college. I uh, quickly fell in love with any and all things, uh, heavy bass drops, you know, quick snare drums, um, fell in love with it really from the beginning. And I knew when I first heard dubstep, I thought this, this is the soundtrack to how I think, like, this is how my mind went. This, this, this music speaks to me. And so, you know, I might be one of the few people in their late twenties who still ha regularly has dubstep on their, on their Pandora, on their cell phone playing in the car. Okay. And do you want to talk more about the relationship between dubstep and the car? Yeah, I think, you know, what, when we're driving, it's where we are fighting the sensation of boredom. You know, that is what we are up against in that, in that space. You know, I have, uh, you know, being in Houston, I've had my, my fair share of commutes. My wife has as well. The way that I picture commuting is I don't think in terms of distance. I think in terms of time. It's I need to get to wherever I'm going. And to get there, it's going to take 30 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever the time is. So I, I don't think about distance. I just think about time. It's like I need to get through this time and then I will just appear wherever I need to be. Dubstep is the opposite of boredom. It is chaotic, it is loud, it is entertaining, it is, it is, it is uh, engrossing. So when you have dubstep playing in your car, it, it invites you to imagine this, this world of infinite possibility and excitement. And so what I wanna be very careful of with the viewers is that when we are imagining these exciting worlds, put them in the future. Don't reimagine your past because then you are hating on yourself. Put your daydreams in the future as something you can aspire to. I think that is a, a really a key difference in how to daydream properly during our commutes as opposed to how to daydream improperly in our commutes. Yeah, I agree with how a lot of people think that driving is, is boring and that's one of the biggest problems and biggest causes of road rage, et cetera. What do you think it is about the mind, the human mind that is so repulsed by boredom or is so offended by boredom and tries to escape it? I think boredom comes from, I think paradoxically, it comes from a position of self-esteem that you view yourself as wasting time, but that's only possible if you believe that you could be doing something better. And so in a way it's our belief and our abilities that causes us to be bored, that we, are, we observe what we are doing and we are thinking I could be doing something better. I think it's a healthy instinct. Kind of in the same way as Nassim Taleb talks about where procrastination is your body revolting against this boredom. You know, we don't put things off that we enjoy. We put things off that we don't like. And so in, in a way, some procrastination is actually a, a healthy instinct in, in the same way that boredom can be a healthy instinct. It doesn't mean that that 
has to control ourselves. And obviously there are plenty of downsides to procrastinating, but uh, it is an interesting idea to think of why do I feel this way? I think for people who feel bored, it comes from a belief in their abilities and a, and a feeling that they're not properly applying themselves to, uh, to life. Okay. I can see that. Um, let's see, what else did we have here? Could you give some good uh, dubstep recommendations for some of yes. our listeners? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so I'm gonna pull up my Pandora real quick and I'm gonna show you my, my last playlist. And, uh, and just to be clear, we're not sponsored by Pandora. No, anyway. we're not, no, we're not, not yet. If Pandora is listening, give us a call. Uh, so I, I love Bass Nectar, I do. This is actually one of my favorite songs here is called Big Boss by Dr. P. You can see that one on there, that's a good one too. Uh, yeah let me yeah bass nectar you know anything done by um you know a blue eyes foundation i think is the name of the song uh they they have a good kind of like electronic pop song they actually did i think one of the songs for twilight which has a great soundtrack people like to hate on twilight because it's fashionable twilight actually had one of the best soundtracks that year and that's true i never heard it it's one of the best soundtracks of that year uh worth listening to a group called Zed's Dead did a remix of the Blue Eyes Foundation that is, I think, a legendary staple in the late 2000s dubstep scene. Definitely worth checking out. Um, yeah, I said, Bass Nectar is definitely high on that list. I like, who's, who's that girl with the violin? That was all that crazy violin stuff. Uh, she, knows who, she knows who we're talking about. She knows, she knows who she is. Uh, she's great. Lindsay Sterling. Lindsay Sterling does a great job, too, with dubstep. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll make a playlist for the next episode. But uh, I, I just go on Pandora, type in dubstep, you know, you'll you'll fall in love with it. Um, and, and stand up for it. You know, don't let these fucking people tell you, oh, that's not real music. You know, my my generation, new music, you know, you know, as 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 Penn Jillette said, people before us gave us the Grateful Dead, which is the worst music ever that was ever made. So don't listen to them. They don't know anything about music. Like, believe in yourself, believe in your own people and believe in dubstep. Okay, very good, very good. Look forward to seeing that playlist come out. Yeah. Um, what else do we have here? Unhealthy versus healthy daydreaming. Yeah. So you distinguished the difference between healthy versus unhealthy as whether it is more preoccupied with the past than the future. Am I yes. understanding? Yeah, pri primarily on the issue of does it give you self-esteem or does it take away self-esteem? It's my observation that when we try to reinvent the past, we are harming ourselves by virtue of self-hatred, that we are trying to replace our past with this imagined person, which is, I think, a form of self-hatred. Don't do that. Learn from the past, but then move on. Like, Build yourself into the person you want to be. Don't attack who you were that doesn't seem healthy to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so how, how is that line drawn between overdwelling on the past versus looking at it in a constructive way to gather what could have been done better? And as long, as long as you are seeking out things to learn from, you're in the clear. That's, mm -hmm. that's the demarcation. As long as you are looking at the past to learn from it, then you were doing something that I think is productive. When you are imagining a past scenario over and over again, but imagining it differently over and over again, 
as a way to entertain yourself and to fantasize about, you know, what if I had gone off for the football team? What if I had done this or done that? That's not being productive. You already, you have already learned that lesson, whatever that lesson is, you've already learned it. You're learning it over and over again, just apply it in the future and move on. But don't, it doesn't seem healthy to me to actively over and over again, replace the past version of yourself with this, you know, copy and paste superhero that did everything right. That doesn't seem healthy to me at all. Yeah, that relates to something I've been thinking about recently, which is this idea that there's more or less a natural flow to the world and to the universe and not to get caught up on any one particular instance. Let, let me give an example. Like, let's say that you're looking back in your memories and you say like, oh, I shouldn't have said that one stupid thing. I shouldn't have said that one word. I should have described it with a different adjective or something. I have, me, I, I have no idea what that feels like, but I'll, let me try to imagine what yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> Put yourself in the peasant shoes and think about that. So, and I find myself not trying to regret those things or not overanalyze those things too much because it's like, okay, let's say I did use the right word there, but the very next day there would have been another situation where I would have used the wrong word again. Like just because the mistake happened once, it's probably more likely that mistake would happen many different times. And if it didn't happen in that circumstance and you had voided that one problem, it would have happened the next day or it would have happened the next day or something would have happened. Like, I think a lot about like what Trump says in, you know, in the media, like a lot of people would argue, Oh, if he didn't say that one thing about the fine people of Charlottesville or whatever, like he wouldn't have any problems. He wouldn't be considered a racist, but it's like, no, they'd probably just find something else that he said on a different track or something. But in, in it, it's, a, it's a difficult concept to, to describe, but this idea that there's just a natural flow to who people are and to the universe and that not really just get caught up on any particular, you know, wording of a certain thing, but just to understand that, yeah, there was, I was a different person then, that's a different, style there's different improvements that can be made and just to not get caught up in the the specifics of things like that i i think that's a that's a great point and i think it ties nicely into this idea with nasim taleb and like focusing on system conversations and not trying to predict the future that and it kind of what you're saying is you know if you have a car that runs like shit it may work one day, but it won't work most days. And so it's like, it doesn't matter like what day it doesn't work on. The problem is the car as a whole. And so rather than fixating on like some particular event, understand what is causing the event to happen and try to make the change at that level, understanding that if it's a person, change will happen over time. And that even if you avoided doing one bad thing one time, if you haven't addressed the habit, you're going to make the same mistake again. And so I, I agree with what you're saying 100%. And I, I think it's, it's a great way to frame conversations over, you know, this idea of Nassim has this idea of like summing over the, all of history, including things that didn't happen. If, you're, if, you're a person, if your personality is such that, you know, 25% of the time you say something that you don't want to be saying, then even if you avoid it one time, you want to avoid it enough to avoid that 25% being a part of who you are. You have to change that part of your personality to avoid that from happening again. And so I agree, I 100% agree with what you're saying, that um, if you fixate too much on a particular moment, then you will miss the conversation. The conversation is what habit needs to change, not how to do well one day. Focus on the habit, on the system, and you'll be in much better shape. I agree 100% with what you were saying.
Yeah, system. It always just goes back to systems versus goals, right? You need to change systems. systems. Meaningful change, not just a particular instance of a word. Or well, so let me give you this. So let me let me build on this. What if every time you said the right thing, you thought about it and thought, you know, even though that time I said the right thing, I could have said the wrong thing, and therefore I should learn from that as well. And I think it, it, it kind of building back on what you're saying. It's let me not. Heart, let, let me not harp too much when I make a mistake. And also let me not take too much credit for when I do the right thing. Let me always have the broader perspective of, I got a little bit lucky there. And I, I, and even though I, I had a good outcome, I still need to work on the underlying habit I'm trying to change because I want to improve my percentage over time, not just that one particular day where I happen to not be a jerk or something like that. Yeah, unfortunately the mistakes stand out a lot more than the good things that happen. <laughs> right. Uh, Think about if you've like sprained an ankle or hurt your back or anything before, like it's all you can think about. It's like <laughs> at the forefront of all your thoughts is like, oh, that freaking hurts. But once your ankle heals, like you never think about your ankle again. Or once your back right. heals, you never think about it. You know, like, right. like when you're trying to rehab something or trying to fix a certain pain or shoulder or something, it's like, yeah, it's only when I screw something up, when I do it exercise improperly that I can dwell and remember it, but if I do all the right PTs and all the right exercises and all the right ways, I don't even think about it. It's not even relevant. So yeah. it's, it's unfortunate you can't re you can't emphasize some of those positive actions, and that the only ones that trigger in the mind are the negative ones. I I agree. But I think we're running a little short on time here. Is there anything else you would like to add in closing to the story? I want people to take seriously the challenge of listening to dubstep. And I also want people to take seriously the challenge of um, building on an idea that if you are bored with something in your life, view that as something positive and figure out a way to be less bored, figure out a way to, to challenge yourself, to apply yourself to things that you find are rewarding and to be creative, to search out the entirety of life's solution space so that you are not missing on, on opportunities. Those are definitely the key takeaways, uh, I think, from this episode. I do want to mention just in closing again, for anybody who's joining us now and you know, didn't either they, they missed the beginning or, or something, you know, next, next uh, week we are uh, interviewing Phil Lacovara, an author in the Tucson area, on his book, False Flags, published by Catalina Press. We are definitely looking forward uh, to that interview that'll be uh, next Saturday we'll get that posted um, so check out uh, for that it'll be on our website it'll be on our, on our YouTube channel we'll put it on Twitter everything else um, always remember to like share subscribe follow us you know at roses and rhetoric I'm sorry at roses underscore rhetoric www.roserhetoric.com and also on YouTube as well check out for content on there but uh, that, those are the main things Joe and I'll uh, go ahead and um, just thank everybody for joining us and then glad to glad, glad to have my 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 co-host back in the studio even if it is a virtual studio and uh, we look forward to seeing everybody next week so yes episode number 13 in the books everybody uh thanks for joining us i'm jimmy haggard for signing off saying ciao